This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Engaging Preludes. The Francocratia. Third Acts. And the Philadelphia Experiment. Robin is known for his stylish convention shirts. But you know who's really stylish? Who's that, Robin? Lumberjacks and bears in the Yukon. Mm, uh, so say our friends at Atlas Games in the form of their new game, Yukon Salon. A quick, humorous, and family-friendly card game that comes in a tin. Oh yeah, that's the one where you're a stylist in the frozen north and your clients are bears and lumberjacks. Hairdo cards rotate so they're beards for the lumberjacks or hairstyles for the bears. You match each style in your repertoire to just the right client and roll to see if they like it. If you fail, you make outrageous claims to get a bonus and keep them from walking out. Bears have hair, lumberjacks have beards, and they both need your help. Yukon Salon is available now, so take your place at the frontier of style today. You can learn more at atlas-games.com or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once again to the Gaming Hut. And, oh, look at that. Peter Frampton's just milling around backstage. Looks like uh, canned heat and bread and, uh, I don't know, maybe one or more of the pips. Who can say? They're all just wandering around, Robin. Nothing seems to be happening. No concert and certainly no murder. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Because at the beginning of every proper murder mystery, there's a lot of screwing around before the murder gets off so that you have information about who might want to have murdered whom. And that part of the murder mystery is often abstracted in gameplay because guess what? It doesn't involve the detectives. So... <laughs> The question before us is, if we are attempting to model mystery fiction or even mystery movies a la Columbo, is there a way to get the players to uh, have involvement in that, that opening setup uh, such that it will inform play and make it more than just a bunch of GM dumps? Oh, you find out that Marge hated Steve and that uh, Karen was missing that weekend or whatever. And so you can figure out how to do it in play and uh, feed the dramatic muse as well as the informational and logical muse. Uh, Robin, what do you got? Right. So our, our first step, I guess, is to, uh, you've already dealt with that uh, somewhat, but to ask ourselves the question, why does this convention exist? And uh, what is it doing in fiction? And you mentioned that it's in any proper mystery. It's most specifically, most often in the cozy mystery where mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it can take, half an Agatha Christie book for someone right. to get fatally conked with a candlestick. Or, or in, in, in one of the Campion books, it takes seven-eighths of the book before she remembers, oh, right, I'm putting a murder in here because that's what my publisher wants. <laughs> yes, this character is a, a crime character, but I've lost complete interest. I'm actually, like uh, George Simenon, using it as a backdrop for character and social interaction. Oh, dang, okay, here's a murder. Here's a murder. But let's assume uh, that we're at least somewhat adhering 
to uh, form and unlike Marjorie Allingham are not diverging from it entirely. And, and as you suggest, the point is to make you care about the people before the murder takes place and sometimes even before the detective shows up. So mm-hmm. the question then is, how do you, why are we doing this? The answer is to make the players care about the people and the situation uh, that they're in. So how do you do that in a sort of prelude form? Now, of course, one answer is don't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, do what a yeah. more modern uh, mystery would do or a police or, procedural. And- or John Dixon Carr, of course, used yeah. to also put the corpse right up front, get everyone moving. Yeah, start with the body on the floor. And and that would end the segment. Uh, yeah. But let's assume that Thanks, you... Thanks, everybody. Yeah, that you want to do that. So the, the thing is that you... The deadly thing that you need to avoid is the idea that the players are hanging around being spectators for multiple scenes waiting for their moment where they get to interact. So the question then becomes, well, what are they doing? What goal do they have in these early stages? So one answer can be that they are, uh, if the goal is to get them to care about the people and get them to know the people before one of them surreptitiously bumps off another of them, what emotional goal do we give them? What? And so I guess what we're looking at in, in this version is something that has sort of a LARPy feel to it where you are given uh, emotional objectives. And uh, so as a GM, I guess you could start by looking at your uh, list of characters, your uh, various suspects, and uh, looking at the relationships between them, and then finding a way to hook each of the player characters into one of those relationships. So they're engaged in that and have some reason to want to interact with these people and have something they want from them. Yeah. And this is easiest, obviously, if your mystery is structured uh, such that the investigators are already on the scene when the murder happens. And we're going to just keep saying murder because obviously it can be anything, but we're talking about murders right now. So, for example, if the murder happens on a ship traveling from uh, New York to London, then the murder happens halfway along, but you've played out the first week of the voyage so that the player characters get to meet everybody and have their own emotional reactions and their own, as you say, emotional needs from those people, uh, which might be as simple as uh, impress that interesting looking young man or woman, or it might be get the millionaire to fund my crazy alien finding Ray or whatever it is. They have some reason to be associated with the set of, of suspects. You can do this with a country house party. You can do it with a lot of the sorts of places that, especially as you say, cozy murders happen. And you could, in theory, even do it in a neighborhood of a city. So if your campaign city, wherever it is, Sunnydale or Arkham or whatever, you start with a, a uh, an arc in which they either have this happen on their street or more likely they happen on another street that they have had to go to for a different reason. Like the uh, ultraviolet house that you went and you burned down last time. Well, it turns out that neighborhood is now a buzz because with that house burned down, there's arguments over who gets to buy the land. And so you are sort of paying attention because it's like that land might've been on a ley line. We need to see who's buying the land. What if they're a wizard? And so you start to follow the squabbles of that neighborhood and then become part of it as well, because you're sort of investigating and then you don't know what's going to turn into a murder. You think you're investigating who's a sorcerer and instead you're investigating, you're pre-investigating a murder that you don't know is going to happen. It's harder to do that, obviously, 
you know, if you are doing the more conventional, the investigators are called in to solve a murder that's already happened. Your, your Columbo situation where you have something that, or PD James obviously uh, does this a great deal where lots of emotional byplay happens and then the detective shows up. And that I would suggest, since you mentioned LARPing, is another great opportunity to let the players play the NPCs. So you pass out the list of prime suspects, maybe even including the murder victim, and you give those prime suspects, as you say, emotional goals. Your goal is to get young Jasper to leave your daughter alone. And young Jasper's goal is to get Lord Fitch's daughter away from him. And the daughter's goal is to um, uh, make sure that she doesn't lose her inheritance, even if she pursues true love with young Jasper. And so everyone has a goal and you do, you know, either a different house party sort of LARP or you do a sort of abstracted, almost drama system-y system where we're calling scenes and it's like, it's going to be you and Jasper or it's going to be Lord Fitch and his game-shooting bluff South African buddy who's missing an eye and seems uh, sketchy and sus in a lot of different ways. And that, you know, allows the players to have investiture in the story and in the characters so that when they meet them as NPCs and the GM gets to do their impression of the player doing that character, first of all, great fun is had by all. Second of all, they don't tune out because it's yet another person droning in a bad British accent. It's it's someone that they played or they interacted with, and so they're concerned about it, right? Right. Well, I'm glad I cleverly maneuvered you into being the one to say, use drama system. We like to change it <laughs> so, up. So, yeah, you could do a couple of rounds of drama system and then switch characters. That works great. And... And, and that definitely gives you the here's the half the novel before McGray or uh, Columbo even show up. And a, a sort of half version of that would be to make little cards with all of the uh, suspects on them and pass them around to the players with uh, and say, uh, you tell me what you want from the uh, character you've been dealt. And if you don't want to interact with that character, switch with somebody else. And so that gives the players uh, more input than, in fact, they would typically have in an actual LARP where you're assigned goals. But you want that, I think, especially if these are ongoing characters, right? If this is a convention run, you don't care so much. You're happy to have that assigned to you because it saves time. But if this is, you know, your character who you're going to want, you played last week in another, another situation, you're going to play again. You don't want to have those imposed on you. So you might want to make that collaborative as as the GM. And another thing that you also touched on a little that I think we could go into in a bit more detail is the idea that there's an investigation from the beginning, but what there isn't is a murder investigation, so that you're sent there on some simpler, less sinister pretext, and that gives you a reason to go around talking to everybody and figuring out what's going on and snooping and eavesdropping on them. And so that could be anything from we're considering inducting this person into our naturalist club and we want you to perform a quick character assessment of them. So why don't you go to this party at a country manor or you believe that there's a, you know, some other minor crime. There's been a, a purloined letter that you want to get back, whatever sort of a cozy, not even misdemeanor, but minor peccadillo that you're there to investigate or, you know, observe this young man with his family and let me know if he's an acceptable match for my daughter, what, whatever it is that there's some other reason that you're going and wanting to interact with people. And I guess that brings us into sort of a tangential tip, which is always make sure that the player characters avoid adopting a 
persona that doesn't justify them then stepping in and taking charge of the mystery. Because the thing that players will often do is they'll have their characters go undercover, but not have figured out why they would then be asking questions about things. So right. you want to yeah. make sure that they don't trip themselves up uh, with their pretext for being there. You want to make sure that they can make a firm transition where they pull out their Scotland Yard identification or their Armitage Files identification or uh, their whatever it is, whatever justifies their uh, taking the, the lead in the investigation afterwards. And you can obviously, you know, it doesn't have to be a sort of 1930s trail of Cthulhu setting. Murder mysteries happen in all settings. And you could imagine a situation in which it's a bait and switch. Like I mentioned with the sorcerer, you could imagine a team of nice black agents agents that are investigating some activity that they suspect is a front for the vampires. And then a murder happens. And the question is, was this a vampire murder? Did the vampires want this guy dead? Or is this a different murder that has a different meaning and they have to sort it out before they can move on? Because if you know, that turns out to have been a vampire agenda item, you want to know that fact. So you can, bring the, the uh, you know, a mysterious murder that they have to look into, into a lot of different setups. You could do it in, you know, F20, for example, you're in the town where you always go to, you know, spend money in the tavern and buy your plus one swords and, oh, no, there's a mysterious murder. And as the local outsiders who can be blamed if it goes wrong, you're in charge of finding out what's happening. Right. And you can use the same structure without the murder. Right. So an- another uh, structure that uses this uh, format is the disaster movie. And so there's a period, you know, where if you're going to do, you know, the Poseidon adventure in space, uh, there's a period where you're just introducing all of the characters to each other. And again, you could use the same set of tips that we've uh, used already. And the thing, you know, the thing that all goes wrong, that, it, that then they have to figure out who the person is. It doesn't have to be a murder. It can be, you know, the sabotage of the uh, shipping lane or, you know, who performed the a dread ritual that uh, caused the rising of the ghouls. First, you have to fight off the ghouls, but then you, you know, you have to find out who uh, brought them back. So now, that's the, a that's an interesting notion: is that the disaster happens first, and then the mystery is who caused the disaster. Yeah, <laughs> it's like you have uh, one session where it's like you get points for the number of annoying NPCs that you're able to lead to safety, and then the next one is the the inquiry afterwards. Mm-hmm. You have to find out who's responsible for it. Well, uh, if there's one thing that I know, I want to avoid both disasters and murders. And one way to do that is we've had the hanging around part in this hut. And I see the colonel with the monocle and the uh, dowager and the uh, sweet young thing and the um, the male ingenue. And I think something terrible is going to happen. So instead of having to hang around and find out which of them murders another, let's get to another hut. Pronto. Axis, mighty capital of the Dragon Empire. Markets flow with goods and gold. Ambitious nobles rise and fall. Knives flash in reeking alleys. While the metallic dragons who guard the Empire watch over it all. Something murderous lurks beneath the gladiatorial arena. And your adventurers are just the heroes to confront it. In Crown of Axis, an introductory 13th Age adventure by Wade Rocket from Pelgrane Press. Play as a one-shot or as a campaign starter. Customizable based on character 
dangerous icon relationships. Delve into danger by getting the PDF today. Cardus listeners can use the voucher code HASHCROWN21. That's CROWN21 to save 15%. At PelgrainPress.com slash shop. That's Crown of Access for 13th Age. The tolling of bells, the smell of incense, the sound in the air where there's uh, no planes, there's no cars. It's a a, a strange world. There's not even any air pollution because, Ken, we've uh, gone back into history. We're in the history hut. And when we step out of the history hut uh, at the behest of the Logan Patrick backer, Dustin Mincy, we are going to uh, look at the Franco-Cratia. Kratia, of course, means uh, mode of government, and Franco-Kratia talks about that period of Greece when it was ruled by the Franks and also some Italians. So, Ken, when people think of Greek history, they just think of the good, you know, the classic period, but this is uh, later than that. This is the uh, medieval period, and uh, you're going to take us on a uh, tour through this uh, slice of history, and then we're going to look at what the cool core activity, I guess, that uh, player characters could be doing uh, in this place and time. So start the story. Yeah, well, the story starts with the Byzantine Empire, as we call it. They called themselves the Roman Empire because they were the Roman Empire. The fact that they were ruling from Constantinople, not Rome, is a minor point to them. And just as a note, a city with a million mules and horses in it has air pollution. Trust me, Robin. So the great Greek empire or Roman empire or Greek Roman empire, if you're in a sort of half measures mood, the Byzantines are running things relatively well and relatively sundry until long about uh, the 12th century when suddenly an influx of Turks starts banging up their national security system, and they think, oh, let's bring a bunch of idiots to fight the Turks, that being the Byzantine uh, foreign policy at the time. The idiots that they chose were the Crusaders, and so the First Crusade sort of worked. The Second Crusade distracted everybody, didn't really help the Byzantines, but at least it kept the Turks busy. By this point, everyone had come back to their miserable Western hovel and said, you have no idea how much money the Byzantines have. They have a lot of money. That's how much. I don't even, I can't count because I can't do math. The Byzantines can do math and have money. We're we're living in the alleged dark ages, yet over there- Classical yeah. civilization has continued and they have gold and gems. It's like it's the Roman Empire or something. What the heck? So the third crusade, again, it goes and pesters the Turks as per proper crusades. But by this point, the kings of Sicily have begun thinking, well, as long as people are invading places, those Byzantines, they don't worship God the way that we do. They're Orthodox instead of Catholic. And therefore, they say the creed wrong, and their priests all have beards, and there's a lot of weird incense, and they speak Greek, not proper Latin. And did we mention they have money? (laughs) Yeah. So, we should be able to invade them. I mean, that's basically crusade logic. So, the Sicilians start invading the Byzantine Empire, and the Byzantine Empire says, this was not in the program. Uh, They fight the Sicilians off, but at this point have begun to look askance on this whole crusade business. By this time, Pope Innocent III, so named because he presided over the destruction of three separate civilizations, Pope Innocent III is ginning up for crusade number four, which is going to go to Egypt because it has occurred to 
people planning crusades that Egypt has money just like the Byzantines do and is also full of uh, Paynim. So we can go after Egypt. That would be legit. And they say, Venice, will you supply ships for this crusade? And Venice says, it is our holy Christly duty to do so for a small fee. <laughs> and the Pope says, King of France, will you gather up the small fee? And the King of France says, love to. But instead of that, I'm going to bring my fee in the form of more warriors. So when they get on the Venetian boats, the Venetians say, no one has a fee. It's, it's like an Uber. You have to ride with a bunch of other people. So we're going to go sack a, a Christian city on the coast of the Adriatic called Zara, which has been making uh, faces at Venice and not paying them and needs to be taught a lesson. And here we have a whole boat full of crusaders. Did we mentioned they have money to do that. So uh, the the Pope is very upset that you would take a holy crusade and use it to sack an entirely unrelated city. And he writes a very stern letter. And the Venetians say, you got any boats? And the Pope says, I don't. And so the Venetians say, then shut up, Pope. So uh, the crusaders, having figured out that sacking Christian cities is even easier than sacking Muslim cities. They're not uh, even when they get it. to Constantinople to be resupplied for their trip to Egypt, they say, well, this city is full of money. Let's just sack it while we're here. The Byzantines take that amiss, but because the Crusaders are already inside the Golden Horn, they're able to overwhelm the Byzantine defenses, and the Byzantines scatter to the four winds, various claimants to the Byzantine throne washing up in what is now Albania, uh, over in Western Anatolia, and then all the way at the edge of the Black Sea. So uh, the Byzantine Empire is is smashed to bits, and what's left is, it turns out, a big, rich empire with a lot of islands and places. And so the first thing that they have to do is set up a, a deal by which one of their number becomes the emperor, and then you set up a feudal system in which everyone swears allegiance to him in exchange for a big stretch of, of lovely, beautiful land. So a Frenchman uh, becomes emperor, a lot of his cousins get major uh, stretches of places like the Kingdom of Thessalonica, the Duchy of Philippolis, uh, the Duchy of Athens, all of those places. They, they make the islands that the Sicilians already owned. They make them swear to the new uh, Latin emperor, as he is known. And uh, that becomes the County Palatine of Cephalonia and Zakynthos. There's counts all up and down the length and breadth of Greece. And uh, they figure... Well, this is a great way to do things. And the Venetians say, well, no one has yet paid us for any of our boats. We have, in fact, housed lots of, you know, statuary, the, the, the horses from the Hippodrome. We think they'll look lovely on St. Mark's Square. But uh, we're also going to take the island of Crete and a lot of other islands. And in addition, Venetian nobles swear uh, fealty to the Latin emperor and get sworn in as the Grand Duke of Lemnos, for example, and the Duke of Naxos. So the Venetians, both inside and outside the structure, the feudal structure of the Latin emperor, take over a lot of uh, very valuable islands. The Genoese attempt to take some islands and the Venetians cold shoulder them out of the way. This makes the, the Genoese very angry. So the Genoese go over to the Byzantines and say, if you guys wanted a fleet that could really annoy the Venetians, we know where one could be rented. And so the, the exiled uh, Byzantine emperors start plotting. But the trouble, of course, being Byzantines is that no, none of the uh, various exile courts can agree who's the chief court. So there's a lot of infighting amongst them. The uh, despotat of Epirus, which is one of the Byzantine successor states, takes out the kingdom of Thessalonica real early. Bulgaria 
takes the opportunity to then carve off the Duchy of Philopolis, Philippopolis, uh, which is just north of the part that the uh, Epirotes just conquered and therefore is cut off from uh, Constantinople. So that falls to the Bulgars. And then things sort of begin to shake out as the Empire of Nikea, which is in Western Anatolia, begins to spread out and uh, move in. There's parts of Southern Greece that have never fallen to the Frankish ruler. And you have to remember all the people in the area are Orthodox Christians. They do not want a bunch of Pope following Christians coming in and telling them how to do things. They don't want to be Catholic. They were happy being Orthodox. They thought it was the bomb. And so none of the Frankish kingdoms are particularly secure in their place. Uh, The closest to what looks like it might have been uh, a secure Frankish kingdom is the Duchy of Athens, which turns out to be small and easily defended and therefore is able to sort of slowly move into southern Greece and start splitting it up with the Byzantines. So there's a a rough status quo emerges between, say, 1230 and 1260. But sure enough, the Byzantines go back on the march and the people of Constantinople welcome them with open arms. They throw the Latin king emperors out on their ear. And now the Franco-Cratian bits are little uh, nodules all around the edge of the Byzantine Empire. And they don't have a population they can draw soldiers from. Soldiers back in France and Italy are very skeptical that they are going to be allowed to loot any more cities if they get to serve in uh, the Franco-Cratian states. So they don't. And so they start hiring mercenary companies among them, most famously the Catalan company, which is from Catalonia. And the Catalan company arrives. The, uh, the Duke of Athens says, I want you to conquer my rivals, the Byzantines in the south. And uh, the Catalan company, you know, beats the Byzantines in a battle. And then they say, now about our money. And the Duke of Athens says, oh, you just did that because you're Catholics, right? And they said, no, we're, we're, we're mercenaries. Says so right on the sign. Yeah. So they throw the Duke of Athens out and take over Athens for the crown of Aragon in uh, eastern Spain. So uh, the crown of Aragon suddenly finds itself owning a big chunk of Greece for about 60 years. At some point... Uh, the crown of Aragon unburdens itself of that. Someone calls in a different mercenary company, the Navarre company, uh, and once more attempts to stiff them. And so that's what happens to the county of Salina is it's run by the Navarre company. All of this uh, foolishness eventually leads uh, the Turks to be able to pick uh, these various spots off uh, piecemeal. But of course, once the Turks take something, once again, it's a legitimate crusade and you can conquer it and the Pope won't be mad. So the Knights Hospitaller uh, crusade in the Mediterranean and take the County of Salina and the Island of Rhodes back from the Turks. So the Hospitallers wind up in a big chunk of Southern Greece there uh, because they basically wait for the Turks to take it. And then when the Turks look away, they ride down. I, I should say that the Despotate of Epirus is eventually invaded by Frenchmen, again, and Italians. And the Orsinis of Rome take it over for some reason, uh, possibly because they're cousins of the Pope. And uh, so they run uh, basically the whole Western part of the Balkans until the Turks come through and take it back away from them. And that is basically the end of the Franco-Cratia. It is in one or two places, uh, the, the the main area of Constantinople, replaced by uh, the proper Byzantine Paleologus dynasty from Nikea, and in lots of other places, it's replaced by the Turks. And the Turks 
Then in 1453, knock out the Paleologids from Constantinople, which by then has been whittled away to basically Constantinople and suburbs thereof. And uh, that's the end, the proper end of the Roman Empire is uh, 1453 when it is run by Constantine, I believe the 12th Paleologus. So the Constantine founds Constantinople, a Constantine loses Constantinople. And uh, in other fun historical rhymes, his general is a Genoese general named Justiniani. So the great Genoese general that tries to save Constantinople is named after the great Byzantine emperor who tried to take over Italy for the Byzantines. So history, in fact, rhymes and then ends for the poor Byzantines, except that it doesn't. Because I remember I mentioned the ones way on the corner of the Black Sea. Those guys don't get conquered by the Turks. They produce a, a princess and they marry her to a little fellow we like to call Ivan of Muscovy. And so the Russians say, we're the Byzantine Empire now, which means we're the Roman Empire. And the Russians move through their lives, the Muscovites move through their lives, believing that they are the Roman Empire right up until 1917 when they are knocked out. Uh, not in this case by Turks or even Frenchmen, but by Lenin, uh, who is his own bag of goods. So it's like one of those NHL franchises that keeps moving from city to city. Exactly. So as a role-playing setting, uh, there's a, a lot of opportunity here. There's conflict, there's drama, there's beating people up and taking their gold. This seems pretty central to the trad tabletop tradition. The setting has the advantage and the disadvantage of being unfamiliar to the player. So it's advantageous in that they don't know what's going to happen. It's disadvantageous in that you have to explain everything to them. It would seem to me that the uh, the hook here, that the group of characters that most fit the desires of players to be relatively footloose and have agency would be to be the, the, the big guns of one of these mercenary companies. Uh, I suppose you could also be the, the household of uh, one of these uh, invading French or uh, Italian uh, noble houses. Uh, you could have the uh, head of the family be either a, a player character who reliably uh, shows up all the time or reliably hardly ever shows up. <laughs> either of those will work. <laughs> and that gives you uh, all sorts of uh, opportunity to have them uh, sort of participate in battles that I guess would mostly happen uh, off stage, and then uh, have the sort of smaller scale skirmish level uh, six guys fighting another eight guys uh, sort of uh, combat that RPGs thrive on. Yeah, I think that certainly um, being part of the Catalan company or a small mercenary company attached to the Catalan company is probably the most uh, traditional F20-ish thing you can do in this setting. The fact that you're fighting back and forth over Greece uh, makes me think that you can be a small little company that's been uh, tasked by some sort of clever sorcerer back in Spain or France to keep an eye out for, I don't know, the Jar of Pandora or the Golden Fleece or any of the other wonderful mythic magic items that are possibly in Greece right now. Um, you can fight, you know, uh, Lamias and Chimeras and uh, Cerberuses and have a proper Ray Harryhausen, Jason and the Argonauts good time. I think that's a good thing that you can be doing in, in that era. That makes something of the setting as opposed to just another bunch of landscape to fight over. I also think that you could probably have a fairly fun bunch of different sorts of intrigue. Uh, rather than you being mercenaries, you could be people who are sent in to spy out 
these various Frankish uh, states by the Byzantine emperor Paleologus that the emperor in Nicaea says, I need you to go in and uh, do various uh, subtle things to undermine these Franks before we go marching in. And so you can become spies for the proper Byzantine rulers, but because they're Byzantines, you already know that your bosses are going to betray you because that's just the way the world is. So you're also, you know, keeping your eye out for magic and, and, and demons and whatnot. It's just, you know, good theology to know that the Franks are all secretly working for demons. So maybe that's your job is you're going around figuring out which bunch of demons is doing what. Uh, if you've already got a Gelf versus Ghibelline thing going on and you're uh, maybe your your time watch game is uh, fighting the Gelfs and the Ghibelines, racketing down through history. The guys running Athens uh, between 1390 and 1458 are Gelfs from Florence, the Accioli family. And just as a side note, that's why Shakespeare calls Theseus the Duke of Athens. It's because in very close memory to when Shakespeare was writing, Athens was run by a duke. And Shakespeare says, well, Theseus must have been a duke. He was running Athens, stands to reason. So there you go. Um, I, I think that that offers some possibilities uh, in a lot of different ways that you've got sort of these Florentine Guelphs running Athens. I mean, not super terribly since they hold on for two generations, but obviously they know that they're going to have to get out. And so you are maybe in that household and it's like the Turks are coming. When do we get out and what can we salvage? You know, now's the time to go down on the crypt and find the blood ruby because the Turks are over the horizon. And then it becomes a sort of almost survival horror in a way that you have to figure out what you can uproot and take back to Florence to jumpstart the Renaissance with before the Turks come. And that's a different sort of a, of a calculation that you make as players. And in this setting or any setting, I think it's a cool idea to have the reason why you have a ticking clock while looting a dungeon or a redoubt or whatever it is that you're looting, you can't keep, you know, going off and healing and coming back at leisure is that there's an invasion coming. And if you uh, stick around too long, uh, you'll come out of the dungeon and uh, the enemy army will be there to relieve you of all of your beautiful gold that you uh, carefully excavated for them. I guess another thing you can do with this period is use it as a, a reason in a modern game for the artifact to be missing, to be somewhere uh, so if you're talking about your uh, shield with the Medusa face uh, still incised in the mirror or uh, any other uh, relic that the uh, Byzantine Empire might have had, could be a classical relic, could be a Christian relic, it could be anywhere. It could be uh, on any of these islands. It could have been taken back to France or to Italy or since the Angevins got involved uh, here and were sticking their ore in, it could even be somewhere in England. So there's, uh, this could give you a, a great reason for uh, something, uh, a wondrous MacGuffin uh, to be somewhere odd uh, that you, uh, your historical-minded uh, characters uh, figure out and track down. And, and I guess the last thing that we can say about the Aegean in this era, as in many eras, is it's full of pirates. So you can run a fine pirate game where you've got a random Greek island that you get to hide out on and they uh, allow you to turn your plunder into ouzo and dance parties. And so you are on this island. You sort of protect them against the occasional sea monster or harpy attack. But mostly you're out sailing around pirating anybody. You can pirate the Turks. You can pirate the Genoese. You can pirate the Byzantines. You can pirate the Venetians. Pirating the Venetians is the best because they're the bad guys and also they're very rich. Um, so just take your, uh, pirate game, cross out Spaniard and write in Venetian and you're ready to go. 
Also, it's galleys instead of galleons, but that that shouldn't be a problem for you, right? Well, I, I think there, there might be a galleon uh, or, or galley uh, ship full of pirates uh, headed uh, toward the History Hut. So let's flee with our treasure and see what other hut and or segment lies on the other side. The Best of Ask the Geln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Protect this podcast's terrarum from fatal partitio alongside such beloved Patreon backers as... Kevin J. Maroney. Jan Zaleski. Darren Hennessy. Yadge from Edinburgh. And Matt Farr. The imposing heights of Freitag's Triangle, the rising of the action, and the suddenness of the denouement welcome us into the Narrative Hut. And here in the Narrative Hut, beloved Patreon backer Derek Upham wishes to ask, what is this third act that keeps disappearing, and what happened to it? I, I think that uh, Derek is uh, having a little bit of fun. Often, uh, the third act is back. Often, the third act is only in the middle, and there's a fourth act and even a fifth act that shows up. So, Robin, tell us about the third act as classically understood. Right. So, I think what Derek is responding to is in our uh, discussion of the horror essentials, uh, there are certain films that I'm less enamored of where I said, well, the problem is it has no third act. Right. And so what that means basically is that it has nowhere to go after a certain point and, and doesn't escalate. So before we get into the definition, I have to say that I'm actually somewhat of a skeptic of the three-act screenplay structure. And as you suggest, some of the most interesting films will have four or five acts. But if you're going to have two acts, you've got to at least have a third. <laughs> and so the third act structure has existed pretty much from the beginning of uh, talkies in the uh, Hollywood uh, film system. And you can tell that because there's a famous story of in the 30s, there were two main recruitment pools for uh, screenwriters uh, once dialogue became a thing. One of them were uh, hard-bitten, mostly New York newspaper reporters who were all uh, lured in by Ben Hecht, who uh, often wrote to uh, his friends and said, there's uh, millions to be made here and the only competition is idiots. <laughs> and uh, he would he told a bunch of his friends this in letters and a bunch of them came out. On the other hand, a bunch of playwrights came from uh, Hungary 
this happens to be a, a moment in history when one wants to get out of Hungary. And so they all went to Hollywood. <laughs> that moment being the 20th century. <laughs> well, yes, I guess uh, needed to get out and were able to. Yeah. And uh, they were famous for their sort of elegant touch, their refined dialogue, their wry sense of humor. What they weren't known for was plotting. And so uh, there was a Thanks, famous Europe. saying, I think even one of the studio moguls, uh, allegedly, perhaps apocryphally, uh, had up in his wall, it is not enough to be Hungarian. You must also have a second act. So with, with that preface, the classical screenplay structure is there is a first act in which the situation is established and then the character makes a decision that changes everything and sets him on his path. And you will recognize that as an element of the uh, classical, somewhat uh, sometimes overdone quest structure. Um, and then the second act uh, develops the consequences of that decision. And that's often, say, around page 20 of your screenplay, when the break between the first act, the, the setup, and the story proper begins. The third act uh, begins, let's say, on page 90, where another irrevocable change happens and the uh, protagonist is hurtled into the story, the stakes rise, and from then on there, there's less breathing room, uh, there's fewer scenes that just sort of break off from other scenes, but rather every scene develops out of the other, and in your platonic ideal third act structure, it continues to escalate and escalate until finally uh, it culminates in a big climactic event, uh, which resolves the story, and then uh, has uh, some sort of uh, coda at the end. In the late 70s or early 80s, this becomes especially a, a fervent belief in Hollywood that you need a third act structure to have a commercial movie, even though one of the most commercial movies that changes Hollywood is 1977 Star Wars, which has five acts. Yep. But people become convinced that you need a third act structure. And the screenwriting manual that everybody goes to is Sid Field's screenplay. And this book had an enormous influence, uh, not just on writers, but on the people who commented on scripts, developed scripts, and greenlit movies. And so screenplay says, well, the third act structure is almost going to be outmoded soon in favor of something more like you see in Kubrick, where there's sort of big chunks of story that are these big uh, set pieces. But for the moment, let me describe the third act structure. And then everyone forgot that bit. <laughs> and became really devoted to the third act structure because it's, it's a formula that allows you to sound intelligent in a meeting and say, well, where's the, where's the turning point on page 20? And where's the, where's, where's the big revelation? But of course, there are all sorts of stories. In fact, probably any list of the, uh, our favorite films uh, can probably include very few with a classical three act uh, structure. But this is supposed to be sort of your underpinning particularly for a commercial, accessible, readily understandable movie, meaning a lot of genre films. But again, there's all sorts of examples of, of things that don't uh, stack up with that. But if you have, as I said, first act and then second act, and then just a bunch more second act and it trails off, uh, which is uh, often the case in horror films that don't know where to go, then you've got a structural problem. Yeah, I, I think that you can... Certainly, uh, it has been done. I won't say you can, but it has been done that the act turn, which is traditionally a moment at which your understanding of the story changes, can happen multiple times in a film. But the 
sort of larger question that is posed by the protagonist or to the protagonist doesn't change. And so you get a, a film, for example, in which we, the viewers are learning things, but the protagonist knows things and is hiding them uh, either from himself, as in, let's say inception, a movie with, depending on how you count it, <laughs> I think six acts or three. And then you have other possibilities in which the question that is posed at the initial change from first act to second act itself changes. And that leads you into a whole different bunch of, of, of dramatic territory because in a way, you've got sort of two overlapping movies as opposed to one sort of uh, Sid Fieldish arc, right? And I think that's what he was talking about when he's talking about, you know, uh, the, the, the sort of the Kubrick model where big pieces of, of story happen. The character is pummeled or carved away by that story. But the notion that this is a protagonistic decision is not necessarily the case. Is that, I think, a fair understanding? Right. And what you refer to as, as the question is sometimes also called the through line. That's the term mm-hmm. that I use in, in beating the story. And you're absolutely right that in a, a well-turned structure of any kind, no matter how many identifiable acts or hunks of story there are, there is a question posed at the beginning and the end rhymes with that some way and, and, in, and somehow... Uh, resolves uh, that question. Uh, you'll notice that there are other uh, things that a third, a three-act structure implies, and the way we've been talking about it is that it implies a movie with a single clear protagonist, and that, of course, is not always a feature of uh, uh, great or memorable films, and often you'll find that films switch their protagonist, and uh, so there may not be a turning point per se, where things irrevocably change for one character, but you might simply shift character viewpoints. So to go back to Star Wars, the first act of Star Wars, the protagonist of that film is R2-D2. And Mm -hmm. only later does this Luke character show up, the classic male ingenue, uh, naive proto-hero. But uh, until then, it's it's R2 who's in the driver's seat, and it's through uh, his eyes that you are uh, seeing the world uh, and the situation. Yeah. It would be interesting to see a supercut, actually, of all of the films that are just through R2's point of view and see <laughs> see him secretly fixing everything. Or making it worse because he doesn't care. He's a little robot. So the question of, you know, when you and I look at a movie and we say there's no third act, what we're actually saying is not that the movie is only 70 minutes long, which in many cases would be a blessing, but we're saying that uh, the movie poses a question and then chickens out on answering it, that the question might be, what's going on with this creepy doll? And then the answer is, it sure is creepy, which is not an answer. Or the question might be something that is used to get you into the situation, but is irrelevant to the situation. So the, you may think, um, oh, I'm looking for my sister in this haunted house, but the sister's fate is rapidly ignored. And the real question was either something else, or it was just an excuse to get you in this cool haunted house. And you can argue, and I guess Freitag sort of does is that rather than having one thing, explain Freitag. Oh, um, Gustav Freitag came up with uh, Freitag's pyramid, which is the notion that there are two forces working in the story. There is rising action or exciting action, and there is falling action 
or counteraction, basically, that Freitag's model is basically a tragedy in the way that Sid Field's model is basically a, uh, a, a comedy or at least a story of accomplishment. In, in Freitag's model, you, you have the same sort of first act, which is the what's going on. You discover what's going on. And then because you're working with the uh, energy of discovery, you reach a natural climax. And then you discover, oh, things are much worse than I knew. That's the turning point. And then as you are desperately fighting the falling action as the uh, as the hero, you hit a point at which, nope, you've lost and it ends in literally catastrophe in the end of everything and the destruction of all your dreams and hopes. And Freitag is looking at things like uh, Hamlet as his model. Much of Shakespearean tragedy has a five act structure. Uh, some Shakespeare comedy has a five act structure, but in, in, uh, things like Merchant of Venice, you get the sense maybe Shakespeare didn't need that fifth act and just put it in because everyone expected one. Well, you need intermissions to sell the oranges. Exactly. Uh, right. That, that's, that's where the big money is in, in clove oranges. And so the notion that a, uh, a tragedy or a serious movie has five acts and a adventure or comedy movie has three acts is I think one that is sort of buried in the bottom of a lot of screenwriting analysts. I think obviously you can look at a movie like say uh, once upon a time in Hollywood, which has, I think five acts, but is based on a sort of a shell game in which you think the protagonist is cliff the whole time, but it turns out it was actually the question is Rick is how does Rick get out of basically emasculation and that swap of protagonists becomes a little sleight of hand that happens basically at the fourth act turn. And so you can imagine, you know, many different clever ways to play on the five act model in the same way that you can imagine. And we talked about clever ways to sort of subsume sub acts within the three act model or extend the three act model out next to another three act model of, of a different film that happens to just happen in the same a theater and a moment as you're watching this one. Right. And and when a film is uh, disappointing for structural reasons, I think there are sort of two separate issues. There's losing track of the through line mm-hmm. or not having a through line. So it's just a series of sort of interesting things ping ponging against each other and, the, and then not cohering. And then there's not having a third act, which is just that it, it may answer the question that it poses. It may continue to stay uh, on its theme and uh, continue to work that out, but it may just not really kick into a high gear at the end. It may just go exactly where it's telegraphing that it's going to go without raising the stakes or engaging you any further so that it doesn't feel like a big upshift in the narrative. And those are uh, can be related uh, problems. Uh, you can have both or you can have uh, one or the other or uh, and of course, there's all sorts of disappointing films that uh, don't have structural problems right. and a smaller number <laughs> of satisfying films that have structural issues. Or they have perfectly good structures. You just don't care because the the first act did not grab you or hook you or make you care about the protagonist or the situation in any way. Yes. And very often my critique of a uh, sort of a Sid Field based third act, three act structure is I don't care because I can see all of those acts being put in place and it's mm-hmm. trying to fit a story into a predetermined somewhat obvious narrative that is uh you know too too easy so you can do all of this in a highly formulaic way and possibly be less interesting than a more ragged film that has more feeling and commitment and uh is willing to take 
uh, weird uh, structural uh, chances. Now, as speaking of act structures, Ken, a typical episode of this podcast has a four-act structure, and I think we've just hit the irrevocable turning point where the third act ends, and then there's a little moment, there's a little beautiful commercial, and then the fourth act will begin. Fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality. Shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax. Doors open to endless Victorian hallways. Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. A king waits for us. And Impossible Landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by Impossible Landscapes. Also sees the bonus new release. Delta Green Static Protocol. Which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action of impossible landscapes in entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them deeper and deeper into research god help them that's impossible landscapes and its companion static protocol both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of arc dream publishing well it's time to once more wander into a particularly ill-defined hut i'm not sure what exactly is going on? I'm looking through a window. There's an alien big cat screaming on the, the moor. And over in the corner, uh, there is the gray alien and the Nordic alien. They're here to tell us that we're in the Liptony hut, the hut where the mysterious meets the paranormal, where the weirdness that doesn't quite fit into any other category uh, hangs out. And this time, both of the aliens are looking at us impatiently because they've been waiting basically nine whole years to get to one of their favorite electronic topics, I can't believe that we haven't done this before now. It is a classic of nonsense, of something based on nothing becoming, uh, if not quite an urban legend, a classic of elliptony. And that, of course, Ken, is the Philadelphia experiment. Do you think that a previous episode, Ken, uh, teleported to another city and then into the future and then met aliens? And that's why we never covered it before. I, I think possibly uh, we've made the topic invisible thanks to Tesla science. And only now, thanks to the works of a Coast Guard confabulator, have we recovered the truth. I feel that's what happened to us, Robin. That makes absolute sense. Well, that's our episode. Oh, wait a minute. I guess we should actually go into detail about uh, what allegedly happened to the USS Eldridge on October 28th, 1943, with the emphasis, get ready for some fun ruining, folks, on the allegedly. <laughs> and uh, we should point out that other people say that the various events of the uh, Philadelphia experiment happened on October 12th or sometime in August. So the 28th is just a date that has sort of been assumed to stick. Yes. Unlike all the other rock solid information yes. in this story. Right. Yes. Yeah. The Eldridge 
basically stays the same, although I guess we, we'll see that is not necessarily the case either. Anyhow, the USS Eldridge is a destroyer, and should we begin with the story or the story of the story, Robin? What do you think people want to hear? Do they want to hear stories of marginalia uh, written by a goof, or do they want to hear about teleporting destroyers? I've answered uh, my own question. So do we start with the fun or the fun ruining? Let's yeah. do the fun ruining. And then go back and do the fun. All right. So in uh, 1955, a fellow named Morris K. Jessup publishes a book called The Case for the UFO, in which he's talking about UFOs. And this, as with many books on the topic, leads to correspondence with a crank. The crank's name is Carlos Miguel Allende. And uh, Allende writes to Jessup, and he's talking in very excitable terms, lots of random capital letters, lots of grandiloquent uh, shouting about the, the truths of aliens and of the misunderstandings of Einstein. Uh, a lot of your cranks are very mad at Albert Einstein for some reason. Well, it was before quantum mechanics really took off. So before then, you had to be mad at Einstein. Right. And, and so Morris K. Jessup writes back to the guy for a while and then says, I literally have better things to do with this, with my time, and blows him off. So in 1957, the Office of Naval Research gets in touch with Jessup and says, someone mailed us a copy of your book annotated in three different colors of ink and three sort of different handwritings. The colors of ink, by the way, are blue, violet, and aqua. And the inscription was Happy Easter, as well as the... Uh, and do you know anything about this? Because people shouldn't just be sending nonsense to the Office of Naval Research. That's uncool. And Jessup says, oh, yeah, that writing and that language style makes me think that it's my old correspondent, Carlos Allende. And so the Navy says, great, can we have copies of all of his letters? Jessup sends him the letters. The Navy guy in the ONR office, who is basically a UFO buff, goes to a government contract printer called Vero Press, prints up a very limited edition of Case for the UFO with the annotations on it. Right. And in the process, putting the imprimatur of the Office of Naval Research on this kukri. On this nonsense. Jessup, for probably unrelated reasons, commits suicide in 1959, and the story, in theory, goes away, except that it does not. It's mentioned in a novel. Copies of the Vero edition become sort of holy grails amongst the crazy universe. There's nothing like being hard to find that makes a book true. Exactly. Uh, so there's a guy named Vincent Gaddis, who is a Fordian, uh, writes uh, a book called Invisible Horizons, True Mysteries of the Sea in 1963. And he obviously had a copy of the Vero Press because he describes the Philadelphia experiment. Um, that becomes the basis of a novel in 1978. And the novel is then plagiarized, let's say, by a guy named Charles Berlitz, who had Not written a big book. Point on it. <laughs> I'd written a big book on the Bermuda Triangle and that book based as it was on Americans desperate misunderstanding of statistics became a giant success. And so Berlitz is looking around. What's the next thing we can do? Oh, look, here's a novel. It's sort of based on truth. Let's write a book about it. Right. His Bermuda Triangle book was a big honking deal. It, it, it was gigantic. A huge effect on pop culture and people's understanding of uh, elliptony. And so you can see, why he would be casting about for something even more fantastical to uh, keep his publisher happy. Right. And indeed, he discovers this Allende material and uh, blows it out into the uh, Philadelphia Experiment book, which takes America not as much by storm as his 
Bermuda Triangle book, but is definitely part of what people know. The fact that the Eldridge for its uh, sea trials sailed to Bermuda, possibly involving itself somehow. Anyway, this falls into the hands of Hollywood. They make a movie starring Michael Pere called The Philadelphia Experiment. It then is firmly part of the underground legend. About the same time as they're making the movie, a guy named from Fate Magazine investigates uh, the story and discovers this is a guy named Carl Meredith Allen. He's not Carlos Allende, and he's got, let's just say he's uh, not the uh, sharpest pencil in the drawer, and he's a confirmed liar. So the Allende material falls apart, but once the movie comes out, a guy named Alfred Bielek comes forward and says, I was on the Eldridge. Let me tell you about all the weird stuff that happens. Speaking of plagiarism, let's let's plagiarize this legend and say that it happened to me. And then uh, people said, well, you weren't on the Eldridge. We have a list of everyone that was on the Eldridge. And he says, oh, did I say I was on the Eldridge? I meant I was on the USS Andrew Furaseth, which was in the harbor when the ship suddenly appeared. It was in the harbor at Norfolk when the Eldridge suddenly appeared after being teleported there by the Philadelphia experiment. And I saw the people and I talked to them later. And so I just used their stories as my own story just to protect those brave men, many of whom fell into the green zone or uh, were melded with the ship because the story is that in a test of um, uh, a unified field theory uh, that was intended to make the Eldridge turn invisible. Uh, it was in fact transported through the mysterious green zone of hyperspace uh, to Norfolk, Virginia instantly from the Philadelphia Naval Yard. And this is what caused all the brouhaha. Uh, so sailors were able to teleport and shift out of things. Many of them were killed instantly. Some of them went insane because they saw demons and, um, uh, uh, beheld Lovecraftian non-Euclidean truths. Um, it, it's just a big, exciting story of what happened to the Eldridge. And so right. it went forward into time and they met aliens. So mm -hmm. it's got, uh, you know, pretty much every possible elliptonic element in it in, in some uh, fashion. And I should mention that the Philadelphia experiment then became the basis for something that we do not have time to talk about in this segment called the Montauk theory in which the Philadelphia experiment was just the opening gun of research that was being done in Montauk, Long Island, which was what Stranger Things was originally based on was this Montauk legend. And uh, they moved it from Long Island to Ohio or Indiana or wherever, I, I think because they didn't want to have to explain why people are looking up this horribly weird and probably borderline racist Montauk theory to talk about their cool little uh, TV show. So uh, Montauk, whole different topic, but it has grown off the Philadelphia experiment. So the Philadelphia experiment is not just robust enough to support three mediocre movies, but also a whole different conspiracy theory that involves Aleister Crowley and Canadian mind control and all kinds of other cool stuff. So yes, from the Philadelphia experiment, you can literally get anywhere in a Liptony country. It's, it's full of good. Right. And like the thing that elliptons are named after, it is a secret military technology, although I guess it's uh, an experiment uh, gone wrong that uh, doesn't uh, get repeated. So in fictional worlds where this can actually have happened instead of being, as Jacques Felice suggests, Alan or somebody else seeing a ship being degaussed and having a hallucination based on that in 
uh, say, uh, fall of Delta Green, you could have survivors of that experiment who are uh, causing trouble or have information that you need and you need to uh, track them down. That could, in fact, you know, they we've already said the word non-Euclidean, so they could have been possessed by uh, Yithians. They could have uh, attracted the attention of uh, the good old uh, uh, Migo, although it's tempting to overuse them in Fall of Delta Green. What uh, less obvious uh, plot hooks would you use in Farkin? There is a Delta Green scenario book called Eyes Only. Uh, it's also background. It describes Project Rainbow, which is the Philadelphia Experiments, uh, one of its imaginary names in the Delta Green universe. And it contains possibly my favorite ever Delta Green scenario, Artifact Zero, by the lovely and talented Dennis Detwiller. And so if you are interested in Delta Greening or Cthulhuing even your Philadelphia experiment, you should get eyes only, even if you don't plan to run it in straight up Delta Green or fall of Delta Green. The amount of obsessive, horrible stuff that Dennis has put into that, you know, hats off. Let's just say that. If you're not going to go the straight up mythos route, obviously, you have a time ship. You have a time-traveling battleship, Robin. How great is that? That's your your time watch. That can be an inciting incident for your characters. It can be a third force that sails up and down the, the, the time stream shooting stuff with their destroyer guns. It can be uh, a base, or it can be a, a place where uh, badness happens because, again, the, uh, the, the, the bad aliens or the hyperspace entities, the ultra-terrestrials, whoever they are, fed Project Rainbow to the government and caused them to rip a hole in space-time there in 1943. And so all kinds of bad stuff uh, floats in and out around there that that can be sort of your 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 roswell crash of of your particular time travel or other horror game uh because the bad stuff is happening and i guess there's also the possibility of doing a a tulpa event where people are deliberately creating a fake urban legend in order to cause enough people to believe it that it then begins to manifest so perhaps that is uh, how you go about defeating einstein uh, using the unified field theory and perhaps even turning it into quantum mechanics is that you create the belief in a Philadelphia experiment event and therefore create the technology. And uh, suddenly uh, you have a battleship uh, show up where you've conveniently placed it uh, on your uh, on your pier, and then you can uh, sail it uh, into trouble as it uh, uh, radiates uh, with the Liptons, or rather you're probably the group of people who discovered that this has happened and are trying to uh, stuff it back down into the reality hole, uh, which suggests that it uh, perhaps uh, has a yellow sign or two uh, painted on it. Yeah, the, 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 that could be the, the source of the Project Phoenix or Rainbow technology. Uh, it could be Carcosan Energies. Obviously, if you're shuttling back and forth between the era of the wars and other eras, that seems like a very natural sort of thing. I should mention that the Eldridge was uh, sold to the Greek Navy as the Leon, uh, was decommissioned and scrapped uh, in 1999. So scrap metal from the Eldridge could be the sort of um, magic uh, metal or temporally charged metal if you want to sort of bring a little tenet energy into your game pieces of metal from the eldridge could be part of it uh, i should mention that the degaussing experiment that you talked about the jock Valise theory is uh, happened to a different ship the uss angstrom which unlike uh, the eldridge was actually in philadelphia the eldridge apparently was never in philadelphia a big uh, shock to everyone <laughs> and and the uh, angstrom did in fact vanish from Philadelphia and reappear in Norfolk in an impossibly short time, thanks to the cutting edge technology of the canal. 
It saved through the Chesapeake and Delaware Canal, which was closed to non-military traffic uh, in 1943. And it was uh, being fitted out for this degaussing equipment, as uh, Valley speculates, and then sailed down uh, to Norfolk to get loaded up with uh, all of its ammunition for its uh, its missions at sea. And it just happened to get there in under six hours, which is much less time than you would think unless you knew a canal existed. So the explanations are degaussing and a canal and a lying person and Michael Correa's brutish charisma. Those that's why the, the Philadelphia experiment. And then there's so much, so much more to it. If Carlos Allende or Carl Allen was actually in on something, was he awakened by something? Was he insane or was he enlightened? Did he touch the outer dark? And that's why he's writing the thing. Who are the other two personalities in his annotations, right? There's someone named Jemmy, uh, Mr. B and Mr. A. Mr. A is the one that is most Allende-ish or Allen-ish, but we now have two missing creatures. Ultra-terrestrials, of course, come in threes always, as we know. So you've got those guys. They're wandering around the 1950s, so maybe a, a proper uh, Fall of Delta Green adventure is not looking into the Eldridge itself, which is under very, very tight wraps. Uh, Majestic has got the clamp down on it, but uh, Mr. B and Jemmy are out there wandering around and maybe they're up to something. Maybe they're the tulpas. Maybe uh, they're the sailors that survived the Philadelphia experiment from the other timeline in which the uh, Eldridge was actually in Philadelphia. And it's a, a matter of of parallel universes, or as you suggest, that they were drawn into existence by this a tulpa experiment to attempt to make a a tulpa battleship that could sail out and uh, and fight Hitler without uh, risking the lives of uh, brave American boys. Right. Uh, the 50s, of course, is the heyday of the contactee. And so contactors like uh, Mr. A and Mr. B and uh, Jemmy uh, could be wandering uh, about uh, spreading dire enlightenment, uh, whether that's, uh, uh, again, a page from the King in Yellow or a page from the Necronomicon or its own uh, pre-quantum vibe, I guess, is uh, is up to you, depending on what uh, game you want to run it in. And you could have a Vero Press edition of The King in Yellow that the Office of Naval Research also commissioned, but no one knows why or who did it. And the only person who does know, you know, got sent to Vietnam and is now missing, and we don't know what happened to him. Yep. And as you suggested, in the, in the wars, the phantom battleship can uh, show up. And then in uh, This is Normal Now, uh, you can encounter someone on uh, on veterans day who was on the phantom battleship and uh, and knows some dread secrets that they want to uh, impart uh, to you which you will be especially able to understand if you just put on this pallid mask uh, and on that note Ken it's time for us to uh, teleport out of here but I think we'll teleport back a week from now with another exciting episode stuff having once again been talked about it's time to thank our sponsors atlas games pelgrin press ask for gown arc dream dork tower and pro fantasy software music as always is by james simple audio editing by rob borges get your priority question asking access by supporting our patreon at patreon.com backslash ken and robin keep this podcast in the cozy phase and out of the murder phase along with such brilliant patreon backers as Oli toivonen thomas vallejo Lewis R. Evans Noel Warford and Pedro Garcia Wear the show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin Combine your love of cats and your love of tentacles with our latest design Tentacle Cat On Twitter he's at Kenneth Height and he's at Robin D. Laws See you next time and once again 
we will talk about stuff.